though these bodies waste away and we have no guarantee that we have another day or another breath or that um, we'll be healed in these bodies, we do have a guarantee that in Christ that all of our sins are dealt with and one day we will receive incorruptible bodies and it's a great, a great hope to hold on to. Please turn in John, to John chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 18 today. John chapter 5, the Gospel of John. <clears throat> Thank you guys for affording me the opportunity to be a, a, away last week. I was able to go up to Arkansas for Heather's grandmother's 90th birthday, and that was a very special family event. And I'll be gone next week as well for another special family event, this time in Indiana. So um, thank you guys for giving me that flexibility. And next week, Peter will be filling the pulpit um, for us and be just continuing the series. He's going to continue to walk uh, through this text that we're going to start today. <clears throat> we are continuing our series entitled Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. We're attempting to walk through the life of Christ chronologically and to do so by going verse by verse through all four of the Gospels. And the, the purpose of this series is for us to see our Lord Jesus Christ better, for us to fix our eyes on the founder and perfecter of our faith, and by doing so, become better worshipers and better followers of Jesus. Now, for the past several weeks, we've been in the Gospel of John um, as we focus on Jesus' early Galilean ministry. But now, if you follow the chronology of Jesus' life, he returns now down to Jerusalem, and we're going to pick it up in the Gospel of John. So John chapter 5, please stand if you would, <clears throat> as we get ready to read from John chapter 5. If you need a Bible this morning, they are in, there are, should be some in the seats in front of you, in the little baskets in the seats in front of you, and um, it's on page 761 of those Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, we, we gladly want you to have that, take it home with you, so that you can have a copy of God's Word at home. So it's John chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through verse 18. <clears throat> the word of the Lord says the following. After this, there was a great feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids. Blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. At once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that was the Sabbath. That day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, 
My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It's perfect. It's incorruptible. And it has power in it. Power to give life. Your word is life. Heavenly Father, we're all sitting here this morning. We have the ability to open up our Bibles. But we do not have the ability to open up our hearts, in our minds, in our eyes, in our ears. The Holy Spirit has to do that. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do that work, that you'd apply the scriptures to us, that you'd give blind eyes the ability to see Jesus in this text the way Jesus wants to be seen, that you'd give deaf ears the ability to hear the gospel in this text, that you'd open up hearts to receive it, and minds to believe it. So we thank you this morning. We pray now that you bless this time of preaching. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I apologize, guys, for the voice again. So I'm only going to be able to talk so loud, so the sound guys may have to bump up the volume here so that you guys can hear me this morning. Uh, when I lived in Ecuador, there were two big extremes in the way people practiced religion. Of course, the religion in Latin America, for the most part, and in particular in Ecuador, was Catholicism at least 98% Catholic in Ecuador. And um, there were these two extremes that you saw in the way people practiced their Catholicism. On one extreme, there was a story when I lived in Ecuador of a, a church outside of the city of Cuenca. And a young girl went and was praying at the foot of a statue of the Virgin Mary. And she claims that the statue began to cry and weep, real tears. And when those tears fell upon her, she was healed. And she went out and told everyone about this statue, and immediately people began to flock to this church, not only from Cuenca and the surrounding areas, but from all over the country, and then soon from all over the continent. People were coming to this statue, and they would stand in long lines for hours after hours after hours and and kneel and pray to this statue in hope that, that, the tear, that it would shed real tears and the tears would fall on them and that they'd somehow be healed. It didn't bother them that no healing had actually been verified, but they had hoped somehow that water flowing out of a statue in the form of tears could somehow heal them. And that kind of stuff went on all the time in the Catholicism in Ecuador. On the other extreme, especially during Holy Week, people would do extreme things to try to earn favor with God, whether it be Lent and they would deny themselves and afflict themselves, or they'd walk on their knees. This would happen every Holy Week. People would walk on their knees up this cobblestone street and then up these long steps to the cathedral, hoping to earn something, some sort of do penance and earn something with God. So there was, on the one hand, this shallow superstition. On the other hand, this this very hard and, and, um, um, and shackling legalism. So this very shallow or hollow um, superstition and then shackling and hardened 
legalism. And the reason I bring that up this morning is that you see both of those things in today's text. You see some superstition that lots of people were believing in, hoping that somehow they could get well by the application of water. And then you get to the second half of the text, and Jesus is having to deal with these Pharisees again, these Jewish leaders who had put such a burden on the people with legalistic restrictions. And the shame was they were missing their Messiah, who was right there in their midst. The shame in Ecuador is that though those 98% of the people claim to be Christians, so many of them miss Christ. And so this morning, as we jump into this, today's text, and we need to consider, consider a little bit more of the context here, both the context of the Gospel of John and the chronological context of when this event happened in Jesus' ministry. First, let's talk about this, this Gospel of John. As you probably know, John focuses more on Jesus' Judean ministry in the southern part of, of Israel, um, whereas the synoptics focus more on Jesus' Galilean ministry. John is also structured in such a way as to highlight theological themes rather than chronology. I think my dad even mentioned that last week in his sermon. Um, you're also probably aware that there's only seven miracles of Jesus mentioned in the Gospel of John. Um, seven signs is what John calls them. There's the water being turned to wine in chapter 2. There's the healing of the royal official son at Capernaum in chapter 4. There's this one today at the pool of Bethesda. There's the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. There's walking on water also in chapter 6. There's the healing of the man born blind in chapter 9. And then finally there's the resurrection of Lazarus in chapter 11. Now if you know the Gospel of John, you know that this number seven is significant because there is a theme in the Gospel of John, a theme of new creation. Um, and so the seven miracles, therefore, correspond to seven days of, of creation. The last miracle being the resurrection of Lazarus most fully displays the work of new creation that Jesus came to bring about. The new creation work of Jesus is evident from the very beginning of the Gospel of John because John 1.1 echoes what book of the Bible? It echoes Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the word, is what John tells us. Then in the very first four chapters of the Gospel of John, we have Jesus declaring or making things new. We have new wine in chapter 2. We have Jesus declaring that he's the new temple in chapter 2 as well. We have new birth mentioned in chapter 3. We have Jesus inferring that he is the new mountain on which to worship in chapter 4. And then we have him talking about a new type of worship in chapter 4. And then we have chapters 5 through 11, which involves um, what they call the, a cycle of feasts, that Jesus is going to go to these different feasts. And in doing so, he is showing how he ultimately is the fulfillment of these feasts, thus giving a new interpretation to these feasts. And also, all of the Jewish ceremonies, including the Sabbath. If you'll remember, that's exactly where we left off in, in the chronology of Jesus' life. In his ministry in Galilee, he was dealing with five controversies with the Pharisees. Remember, there were five confrontations that he had with the Pharisees, the last two of which revolved around the Sabbath. You remember Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field of grain, and the disciples are plucking heads of grain and eating it, and the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, are very upset because they, they believe that that's a breaking of the Sabbath. 
And Jesus not only uh, shows them that they're not breaking the Sabbath, and he teaches them that, hey, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He then goes on to demonstrate it by healing a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He was demonstrating and declaring to the people there in Galilee that he, the Son of Man, was Lord even of the Sabbath. So now he's coming down here to Jerusalem for a feast, and he's going to continue to stir up controversy regarding the Sabbath. And by doing so, he's going to demonstrate again his lordship over the Sabbath. As we mentioned last week, his lordship over the Sabbath equals his divinity. If you'll remember, by declaring that he is Lord of the Sabbath, he was declaring that he himself was creator, deliverer, and covenant giver. So today I want us to start at the end of today's passage. The end of this passage, start in verse 16. I want to read that for us. Look at what Jesus is claiming here, and let that be the foundation for which we go back and look at the whole of the text. So look at verse 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why they were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. He was indeed in this text, making himself equal with God. We need to understand that if we are to understand this miracle that he does for the man at the pool of Bethesda, we need to understand this foundation, that he is making himself equal with God. Jesus chose to heal this man on the Sabbath. As we read, the man's been an invalid for 38 years. He could have waited another day. But he makes a decision to heal this man on the Sabbath for a reason. He's stirring up controversy that will allow him to declare that, like his father, he does not stop working on the Sabbath. I believe that's the reason Jesus performs this miracle in the story. It's to undergird and to demonstrate the very truth that he, as co-equal with God, has the divine rights that God has, and he is working as the Father is working. For God the Father is his Father, and he as the Son is co-equal with God. So hopefully you guys have enjoyed the study you've been doing in your community groups during the week um, (coughs) regarding the Trinity and been looking at some of these things. And and I know you're going to enjoy Peter's sermon next week as he digs into basically Jesus, after he pronounces this, he's going to to explain it even more and just really jump into who he is in relation to the Father. So here, particularly in verses 16 through 18, Jesus declares his divinity. And for that reason, I believe that verses 1 through 15, Jesus is displaying his divinity. He displays the workings of God. So let's walk through this text, starting very back at the beginning, at verse 1. Verse 1 says this, After this, there was a feast. Now, we're not sure what feast exactly this was. But it was more than likely, many scholars believe it was one of the Passover feasts. But we're not for sure. It was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now the Sheep Gate was a gate on the northeastern corner of the wall of Jerusalem, outside of which many shepherds herded their sheep. And especially at the time of Passover, there had been thousands of sheep outside as people who were coming to Jerusalem would need lambs for the Passover meal. So I think it's very interesting that Jesus shows up here. He may have walked in through the sheep gate, the very gate 
through which they would have been bringing in the Passover lambs. It's worth mentioning, though, here uh, that for a long time, scholars thought that John was wrong and that he didn't know what he was talking about. He was totally in error regarding Jerusalem because there was no evidence of this pool of Bethesda. So for a long time, people thought, well, John just doesn't, he doesn't, he's just making this stuff up. Well, that was until 1888 when there were renovations being done on a church there in Jerusalem, Jerusalem called the Church of St. Anne, and it resulted in an archaeological find in which underneath that church they found two pools surrounded by four porches, and one porch that went down between the middle of them. So these porches were these roofed colonnades mentioned here in the text. The pool of Bethesda was real. And friends, I'll just say this as a parenthetical note. Archaeology has never disproven a single word of Scripture. It's done the exact opposite. Every time there's been an archaeologist who said, well, that can't be right, it seems that once there's been more and more archaeological finds, it only supports what we see in the Scripture instead of uh, debunking it or anything like that. So that's what's happened here. There is this pool of Bethesda. Now, one other thing to mention here is a textual issue. You may notice if you're reading from the ESV and most other translations other than the King James that your Bible skips. You'll notice you have verse 3, and if you look at your text, you can look down there, there's no verse 4. Do you notice that? Matter of fact, the second half of verse 3 and all of verse 4 can be found at the bottom of your page there probably, more than likely, your translation has a little asterisk there pointing you to something at the bottom that says something like this. This is what the ESV says. Some manuscripts insert wholly or in part, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain times into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So that's in some manuscripts, but not the most reliable manuscripts we have, nor in the oldest manuscripts that we have. So that's why most modern translations omit those verses, but they put them at your, in a footnote there. So you can see that those, those words are in some manuscripts. So I believe that the translators of the ESV and most modern translations have it right. Now, unless you have the KJV here this morning, as some of you might, you probably don't have that section of text in there. But I believe they're right because I don't believe this is to be included in Scripture. More than likely, this was a scribal insertion because someone was trying to explain verse 7. Because verse 7, we see that this man gets, wants to be thrown into the pool, and he complains that he can't get there first. Someone else always gets in there before him. And so probably some scribe, as they're copying the Scriptures, puts an explanatory note off to the side or somewhere to help people understand what's going on here, why this man is wanting to be thrown into the pool in the first place. But our earliest manuscripts don't have that information up there. Now, some of you out there may be saying, see, I told you the Bible's not reliable. But see, you'd be totally mis misunderstanding things if you were to think that. It's actually the great number of manuscripts that allows us to have great confidence in what we have right here. You see, there's so many early manuscripts of the Scriptures, so many more than you have of any other ancient document on record. I mean, you can go to Plato, um, um, anything else you might want to have, Homer. You do not have near the amount of copies of manuscripts that we have for the New Testament. And so we have great reliability. We can compare, and that way we can tell, wait a second, obviously someone added something here because it's not in all these other manuscripts, especially these really old ones. So we can have absolute confidence that what we have right here is God's infallible word. And whenever there is a textual issue like this, 
First of all, it's so, there are so few of them in the scripture that, that, that 99.9% of the text there's absolute confirmation on. And those few that there are questions about, like this one right here, have not, do not affect our theology whatsoever. It doesn't affect the message of scripture. So I want to get that out there this morning, though, because you're probably wondering why your Bible skips from 3 to 5. Now, it says in verse 3 that in these colonnades, there lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, a multitude, excuse me, (coughs) I feel like a boy going through puberty this morning as my voice goes, wow. All right. A multitude probably means at least 100 or more people. This was a spot of terrible suffering, a terrible disease of uncleanliness. Imagine the smell of Hundreds of people who can't even clean themselves or go to the bathroom by themselves. It was undoubtedly a very dirty and disgusting place. No self-respecting Jew, no, no upstanding person in Jewish society, certainly no rabbi or anyone who wanted to be ceremonially clean would go there intentionally. Yet, this is where Jesus shows up. In the midst of the filth, in the midst of the hurting, in the midst of the desperation. This is how Jesus works. This is how the Father works. God comes to those who are desperate and diseased by sin and suffering. And we see here that Jesus singles in on one man. He focuses attention in on one man. Verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? So the first thing I want us to see this morning in your next point in your notes, as we're looking here at Jesus, how his actions demonstrate the works of God, how he demonstrates his divinity, the first thing I want us to see is that he displays the divine right to grant undeserved mercy to whomever he wills. He he reserves the divine right to show undeserved mercy to whomever he wills wills. There is a multitude of people here, but he zeroes in on one man. Now, Jesus didn't haphazardly just happen upon the the first person he saw, but instead he chose this man for healing. The Greek makes an emphasis here in verse 6 when it says Jesus saw him. He focused in on this one man, zeroed in on him. Now, we know that Jesus could have healed everyone there. He could have simply pronounced a healing And hundreds of people could have gotten up and and just walked away immediately. Walked into this town for the glory of God. Blind people seeing, lame people walking, limbs restored, Christ exalted and shown to be God. Well, that's how we would write the story. But God in his providence does not do things the way we would. One of the things we struggle with, I think if you're honest with yourself... And that we must learn to submit to as believers is that God's sovereign will is a secret. We say, God, heal them all. We say, God, save them all. And God does as he sees fit for his good and perfect purposes. Purposes we can't look into, mysteries we can't fathom. But it's in the midst of those struggles to understand why God chooses to act as he does that we are called to submit and to believe. To believe in how God works. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's how the Father works. The Father is always working, and the Son 
is always working, working in ways that we cannot understand. And it is within his sovereign prerogative to choose to act when and how he so desires. So here Jesus displays the divine right to grant undeserved mercy to whomever he wills. Undeserved mercy. Now we are saddened by the scene here. Lame, crippled, sick, diseased, dying people all around that pool. Our compassion is stirred up when we see such scenes. How much more was Christ's compassion stirred? How much more was Christ saddened by this scene? Well, you see, Christ's sadness goes deeper than our sadness. He's able to get to the heart of what truly grieves God, namely sin and the sinful condition of man. The sinful condition of man was on full display at that pool, not only physically as ravaged bodies lay strewn around evidence of the curse, but spiritually there by the pool were men and women who had crippled hearts, hearts unable to heal themselves, crippled due to indwelling sin, sin committed, sin inherited. There was not a deserving person at that pool. So we, we think Jesus is unjust to walk up and choose one. But the fact of the matter is there's not a single deserving person sitting around that pool. There's not a single man or woman who could look at Jesus and honestly say, I deserve to be healed. And there's not a single human soul in the whole of history that can claim that they deserve physical healing and much less spiritual healing. For all have sinned and fallen short, woefully short of the glory of God. And the wages of our sin, what we are due, is simply death. So any health we have now is simply grace, undeserved mercy. And that's what I was talking about when I prayed earlier. As I sit here and complain to the Lord, God, why have you taken my voice for four weeks? The fact that I'm breathing is more than I deserve. But in walks hope. Perhaps through the sheep gate, in walks mercy in the flesh. The name of the pool, Bethesda, means house of mercy. And in walks Jesus, in whom God's mercy is housed bodily. And here he is doing the works of God as he walks into the place of death, as he walks into this place of affliction, as he walks into this place of hell to show undeserved mercy. And he is in lockstep with his Father's will, empowered by the Holy Spirit's power. And he chooses to be gracious to whom he will be gracious and to show mercy on whom he wills to show mercy because he's working just like his Father works. So Jesus looks at the man and asks, do you want to be healed? Now at first glance, this may seem like a silly question to us. Right? It's like, you know, as a parent, your kid bangs his head and walks in. He's got blood coming down the side of his face. He said, did you hurt yourself? Duh. All right. So you may think this is a silly question. Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? But Jesus doesn't ask silly questions. The question is meant to cause this man to examine his own heart. First of all, we know that there are many people in the world who don't want to be healed. There are some who are happy being the victim. There are some who, no matter how much you try to help them, 
continue to play the part of the victim and won't get out of that spot. Do you really want to be healed? There are many of you ask that question in a spiritual way. Do you want to be healed spiritually through Christ? They don't want it. They're happy in the affliction of their sin. We don't know exactly what this guy was thinking. But he doesn't answer, yes, can you help me? Instead, I think his answer reveals a lot. The sick man answered, verse 7, sir, I have no one to put me in. Um, Literally, this means to throw me in. No one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Now we can praise God for that scribal insertion because it helps us understand this a little bit more. But, but notice he doesn't answer Jesus' question. Jesus said, do you want to be healed? And he doesn't answer the question. Instead, he gives what? An excuse and an explanation for his, for his condition. He's a victim in his own mind. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. We begin to see that there is nothing redeeming about this man in the story. As we begin to look at this guy, there is nothing special about this guy. You read the commentators, and, and I think it was D.A. Carson who may have said, this is the most unlovely person Jesus ever healed. There's nothing redeeming about this man in the story. Of all the men to pick, of all the people, men, women, children perhaps, at that pool, Jesus goes up and picks this guy. His answer reveals a man who may or may not really want to be healed and who justifies himself by saying there's no one to help him out. Now you may think I'm being too hard on the guy. Except that his actions in the rest of the story today continue to show that he wasn't a real pleasant guy. First of all, there's no faith whatsoever expressed by this guy when Jesus heals him. This is one of the few healings where it doesn't involve the person expressing faith. Matter of fact, I believe this guy's healing was only physical. I don't believe he was healed spiritually. So he shows no faith at all. And then when Jesus heals him in verse 8, we see no evidence whatsoever this man has any sort of gratitude toward Jesus. Now the text does say that Jesus withdrew into the crowd, which literally means he melted into the crowd. So we'll give this guy the benefit of the doubt. But his ingratitude comes out later. In verse 13, when the Jewish leaders confront him and asked who it was that healed him, it's like this guy... I mean, he just got up and walked away after he was healed. And he has no idea who healed him. I mean, they ask him who, well, they didn't ask who healed him. They asked who told you to pick up your mat. And it's like he's going, um, that's a good question. I have no idea. And then Jesus, sees, Jesus finds him in the temple in verse 14. And again, we see no evidence of gratitude. No evidence of gratitude. And then when Jesus tells him to, to stop sinning so that nothing worse would happen, He doesn't respond to Jesus with any words of repentance, any acknowledgement that that the ultimate issue in his life wasn't health but holiness. But what does he do? He commits the sin of Judas by going and writing out Jesus. He runs to these guys who knew, he knew they were looking for the person that did this. And what does he do? He wants to get out from under the accusation that was made against him for breaking the Sabbath. And he says, look, look, there's the guy that did it. There's the guy that made me well. There's the guy that told me to take up my mat and walk. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. I'm the victim here. It's not my fault. How many people are walking around this world today in desperate need of the healing touch of our Savior to be made right with God? And what's standing in the way is them repenting of their own sin 
it's not my fault. I had an abusive father. I grew up in an environment where no one shared the gospel with me. It's not my fault. All the chips have been stacked against me. It's not my fault. You see, Jesus heals people spiritually who fall on their face and say, Yes, Jesus, woe am I. I am a man of unclean lips. I am a sinner. And I desperately need your healing touch. I need you to save me and make me right with God. But that's not what this man was doing. Like I said, there's nothing really redeeming about this guy. And you may be thinking, well, why did Jesus pick him? Maybe he just picked the wrong guy. Well, verse 6 says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time. When John uses that language of Jesus knowing, he's talking about divine knowledge. Just like we saw in chapter 1, verse 48 with Nathaniel. Just like we saw in chapter 2, verse 25 with those who believed in Jesus but didn't have true faith. Just like we saw with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus peers into the heart and soul of this man and he knew what he was like. He's doing the works of his father and he sees into the heart of this man and he still chose to show mercy to him. But that's how God works. That's what makes God's mercy God's mercy. It's undeserved and unconditional. Jesus didn't go pick the most deserving disabled person at that pool. He, by his own divine and sovereign will, chose this jerk. And he chose this jerk. And he chose all you jerks out there. He did. There's not a single deserving person at that pool or in this room. God did even more for those of us in here who are believers. He saved us from spiritual deadness. We were spiritual invalids, and we were as undeserving as spiritual healing as this man was of physical healing. Yet, in his merciful goodness and and grace, according to his providential will, he worked on our behalf, and he saved us. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus is demonstrating the works of God in ways that we cannot fathom or explain, in ways we do not deserve or earn, undeserved mercy on whomever he wills. But he also demonstrates the works of God by pouring out that that undeserved mercy, but also by displaying unlimited power. And that's the next point. He displays the divine right to exercise unlimited power to heal whomever he wills. Verse 8, Jesus says to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. Jesus' mercy is a powerful mercy. He doesn't say, okay, I'll wait here with you and throw you in the pool when the time is right. You see, his power doesn't depend on anything else. He simply says, get up. And walk, that's divine power on display. This man was relying in superstitions. He was relying in in water to make him well. He was trying to secure his own healing by doing something or having someone do something for him. You may say, well, if people weren't really being healed at the pool, why do they keep flocking back to it? Because sinful people will flock to anything other other than God to be freed from their sinful condition. Let me say that again because my voice didn't let it all get out. 
people will, will flock to anything other than God to be freed from their sinful condition. That's why at that church in Ecuador, though not a single person has been verified to have been healed by these miracle tears that come out of the statue of Mary, even today, I know it's been 20 years ago, there's probably still lines going out that door. And the sad scene of people coming and bowing at a statue. Today's televangelists and con artists will use music and drama and special lights, special effects even, to heighten the emotions, to put people into a psychological state of being, to believe anything and everything. The miracles they propose to do on God's behalf are never verifiable. God can still heal today, yes, if he so chooses. That's why we pray for our brother Rich. But he does so in his way when he wills. It is not normative. And by all means, the power to heal is not beholden to men who think they can conjure up the Holy Spirit power like some cheap Las Vegas sideshow. But that's what people want. People want the spectacular sideshow. People don't want to submit to a sovereign God who very well, it may be his will, that you suffer. He may ordain suffering and sickness who in his mysterious purposes may allow his children to be crippled for life. Just ask Johnny Erickson, Tata. People don't want to worship that God. I want to worship the God that makes my hair stand up on the back of my neck, makes me feel tingly, makes me get knocked over in some sort of, some sort of spectacular state so I can get something from him. People want the sideshow. They don't want the sovereign God of the universe who works how he sees fit. When we read the Gospels, we see Jesus healing in a variety of ways, sometimes with a touch. In, in chapter 9, we'll see him mixing his spit in dirt and making mud and putting it on a blind man's eyes. We see him healing from 15 miles away. We see him simply speaking a word. He is not bound by any method, any incantation, any emotional state, any water, anything else. Nor is he bound by the will of man. For this man evidently, in my mind, didn't have any will to be healed. Yet Jesus healed him because it's his divine right to do so. Because he does the works of God. And when he speaks, newness comes. Verse 9, and at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. At once, bones made new and set back into joint. At once, muscles that had withered away to nothing made new and restored. At once, tendons made new and reappearing. At once, equilibrium made new so he could walk. At once. That's the works of God on display. I'm not sure the man saw it, though. That's what's so sad. And we know the Jewish leaders didn't see it. If we continue to read in verse 9. We see this, this phrase here, which is the hinge point of this whole text. Now, that day was the Sabbath. The whole story hinges on this verse. So in verse 10, it says, The Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. So here we have them nitpicking about the Sabbath again. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, their response is amazing. Okay, this guy just said he had been healed, and they didn't hear it. He just said, the man who healed me told me to do this. And they say, 
who is the man who told you to do this? They're like, I mean, any of you have kids, you understand this, that they're selective hearing, right? Or husbands. <laughs> um, so, you know, you say to, your, say to your child, hey, you know, you go take out, if you'll take out the trash, after you take out the trash, you can have a piece of cake, you know. Okay, great. And you walk back in the kitchen, they're sitting there, oh, you know, hey, did you take out the trash? What? I told you to take out the trash before you ate the cake. Really? Yes. And, and that's how many of us are. That's how these Jewish leaders were. They didn't hear the fact that the man had been healed. They didn't care about that. They should have responded, whoa, what do you mean? You mean you were lame? Oh, you're that guy that was out at the pool? My goodness, who did that? They want to know, who told you to break our rules? Now, the man who had healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. The man missed it. He didn't know who Jesus was. But he's going to get another chance as Jesus finds him and speaks to him. And the next thing I want us to see as far as Jesus doing the works of God is this. He displays the divine right to command unblemished holiness of whomever he wills. Afterward, Jesus, verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus finds this guy because Jesus has more to offer him than simply physical healing. He finds him and gives him a command, a command to be holy. Why? Because he desires for this man to see that he needs to repent and receive forgiveness of sins and to be granted a righteousness that is not his own. He wants this man to see that the healing was simply, simply a sign. That's what the whole gospel is about. All these seven signs, John says this in John 20, 31. All these signs were meant to point you to Jesus so that you would believe in him and in him you might have life. That's Jesus' desire for this man. But this man was more interested in his wellness than his holiness. And so Jesus here is confronting him with the fact that he's a sinner. See, you are well. You're healed. Your body's like new. But you still have a problem. So, sin no more. This command is a display of God's work. From the beginning, God has commanded holiness of his creatures. That is why he gave the law. And only God can command holiness. I can't command you to sin no more, for I'm a sinner. I have no authority. But Jesus can. And so we exhort one another to stop sinning and to live holy lives. We do so not on the basis of our own holiness... Or our own authority, we do so solely on the basis of his authority and his holiness. People that command you to be holy based upon who they are are what we call hypocrites in the church. We don't do that. We exhort one another to be holy because he is holy. And so Jesus does the works of his father. Jesus does his work here as he commands this man to be holy. Oh, how the people who interacted with Jesus often missed this. When the work of Christ's divine healing power was on display, you want the response of this man in this story to be like Peter's response. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's what you want. You want this man falling on his face after he's just been given the ability to stand, to fall back down and say, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, because he recognizes he's in the presence of the divine. But he simply got up and walked away. And when Jesus goes out of his way to find this man and to tell him to stop sinning, 
He should have reacted like the tax collector in Jesus' parable, beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But he doesn't. He's like the rich young ruler. He cannot see his own sin. He cannot see his need for radical repentance. He cannot see his need to be radically forgiven. He cannot see his need for radical righteousness that's not his own. He cannot see that. And he cannot see that something much worse was coming for those who didn't believe. See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, some people believe this text implies that the man's sinful condition or his physical condition here was a result of some previous sin. That might be the case. But as we stated before, we've got to be real careful to not always correlate a specific physical ailment with a specific sin. Now, in a general way, all, sin is, all sickness is related to sin in the sense that we are sick because we live in a fallen world due to the sin, sinful condition of man. And we also do know that the Scriptures do teach that sometimes there are specific physical ailments that are tied to specific sins. But we don't know if that's the case here. It might be. And we know that that's not always the case because we'll get to John chapter 9 and you'll see a man who was born blind and Jesus tells the disciples it's not because this man sinned or his parents sinned that he's born blind, but so that God might be glorified. So we don't know the situation with this man. But Jesus here is concerned with something worse than being a paralytic for 38 years. Something worse that will happen to this man if he's not made holy and not just whole. Think about that. I think if you're honest, those in here who have had parents or relatives who have become disabled, and you see the situation they're in, maybe an elderly parent, grandparent, where they are totally disabled and they're totally dependent upon someone else to feed them, to take care of their bodily functions. I think that we all, if we're honest, we fear that day. I do not want to be in that situation. We, we're scared of that. And here this way man was for 38 years in that condition. 38 years. So as horrible as that is, as we can get it in our mind and think how terrible that would be. Jesus says something much worse is going to happen to him if he doesn't repent. Something much worse than being disabled for 38 years. Friends, hell is much worse than being disabled for 38 years. Worse than sitting at a pool waiting in vain to rid yourself of a temporal, physical suffering is sitting in the lake of fire knowing you will never rid yourself of eternal, spiritual, and physical torment. And instead of hearing Jesus' call to holiness and heeding it, he goes and immediately sins. He sells Jesus out, as we've already pointed out. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And that is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But as I said at the very beginning, Jesus knew all these things would happen. He had intentionally healed on the Sabbath. He had created this controversy so that he could answer the, these Jewish leaders. So Jesus answers them in verse 17. My father is working into now, and I am working. Jesus, throughout this story, has been demonstrating the works of God, and now he declares that he is co-equal to God and thus doing the works of God. All the Jews there knew what Jesus was talking about. 
The rabbis had already, this had been discussed many times in rabbinical circles. That yes, God did rest on the seventh day from his work of creation, but he couldn't rest from his work of providence. He still had to hold the universe together. He couldn't cease to work because he was God. So Jesus is saying, you don't hold the Father to your limited understanding of the Sabbath, for he indeed is working, and you can't hold me to it either, for I and my Father are one. He says, my Father, not our Father, thereby signaling that he has a special relationship with the Father unlike anyone else. And notice he doesn't say, my Father is working until now, so I am working. Although Jesus does imitate his father as the perfect son, he is not working solely in an effort to copy his father. He is working with his father. In perfect unison, he is working because he is co-equal to the father. The father works and I work because we are one. He is indeed, as the Jews claim, making himself equal with God. I find it quite funny that many scholars today, liberal scholars, will try to go to passages of John and say, well, Jesus didn't really mean that. They try to dismiss Jesus' own claims of deity. But if they're going to dismiss Jesus' claims to deity, they've got to dismiss the Jewish reaction to it because the Jews didn't think he misunderstood himself. The Jews understood it. He's claiming to be God. And this is why, verse 18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They didn't miss it. They didn't miss what he was claiming. They knew exactly what he was claiming, and they hated him for it. Friend, do you understand what Jesus is claiming this morning? Do you understand what he has shown? Do you see it? He has displayed his divinity in this text. He's displayed that he is doing the works of God. He has declared it, and he demands holiness. So, friend, repent from your sins and come to the only one who can heal you of your infirmities, the only one who can give you mercy, mercy you do not deserve. Oh, friend, if you see Jesus this morning for who he is, then I beg you to come to him. Just a little later in John chapter 6, Jesus would say this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. Come to him this morning. Believe in him. He is God the second person of the Godhead, the Trinity, co-equal with the Father, and he is working. His divine work is continuing. His work keeps unbelievers breathing. How many people walk around this globe today breathing their next breath and are are as ungrateful as the man in this story and don't even see Jesus? I don't know. I don't know why I'm alive. And believers this morning... He's still working on your behalf as well, Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Praise God that Jesus is still working. And so I pray this morning that you would draw near to him, look upon the Son and believe in him 
And in doing so, you will have eternal life. Only then, when you come to Jesus, can you heed his command to sin no more. For only then will your past sins be forgiven. For he bore the wrath of God on your behalf on the cross, taking the punishment of God on behalf of sinners, and all your future sins forgiven as well. And only then will you be made whole and right. For God gives you his own righteousness, his own perfection, so that you are justified before him, clean and holy. God sees you as he sees his own son, Jesus. He sees you as holy. And what's more, he gives you himself. He gives you the Holy Spirit so that you might be a new creature with new desires and new affections. So as long as you're on this earth, the Spirit will be working as well, working in you to make you hate sin more and more and give you the power to kill sin daily and in the process make you more like Jesus to make you holy. Only then... When you come to Jesus, can you be spared something worse than being an invalid for 38 years? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I don't know who all's in this room and what baggage you bring in with you this morning. But maybe you're like those in Ecuador and you're hoping for something to happen, some miracle to happen in your life. Waiting for God to send a spectacular rainbow to confirm something for you. Instead of just trusting in his providential will. Or maybe you're like those that get on their knees and walk up the steps to the church. And you're trying to earn your way to God this morning. The gospel shoots both those things down. Heavenly Father, I pray for those in this room this morning. For the believers, I pray, Lord, that we would see and savor Jesus more and more. And that in doing so, we would heed his command to sin no more, knowing, Lord, that it's not us. We don't deserve it. We are as undeserving as the man sitting at this pool. That we need, we are sinners, and we need desperately the work of God in our heart. And we believe if we've come to faith in Christ that we have been justified, we've been made right, as we sang about earlier. But we also need to be sanctified. We're still struggling with these sins. We've got to kill some sin. And Lord, for the unbelievers in this room who have been putting their hope either in something to happen to them or in something they could accomplish, I pray, Lord, that you'd rock their boat this morning and show them that neither one has any value before you. And they desperately need Jesus who died on the cross. And they'll put their faith in him, only in him alone, and his work on the cross. And his, his work on the cross, your work, God, the Father, his work that he did, will be applied to them, sins forgiven, and they will be made righteous and holy before you, and they'll be given the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's work, your work, Father, the Spirit's work will continue to be done in their heart as they're made more like Jesus day by day. So I pray that for those here in this room. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and pray now, Lord, that you be honored in this time of response. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.